Good day, my friends, my companions in the upward call of God, pioneers of the heavenly way. I hope you're ready for today's excursion in the one-year Bible tour. It is July 20th, and my name is David McAdam, pastor and Bible teacher here in Concord, Massachusetts, serving New Life Community Church, and thankful for the opportunity to be encouraging brothers and sisters across the globe in this worthy goal and daily discipline of reading through the entire Bible in a year. We are reading consecutive portions from the Old and New Testaments each day with a bonus of a daily dip into the book of Proverbs and reading through the book of Psalms twice a year. Today we begin our 14th book in the Old Testament, the book of 2 Chronicles. We will be reading about the son of David whom God had chosen to build the temple and establish his kingdom and peace. The reign of King Solomon hints at the Prince of Peace who will one day establish his perfect rule in righteousness. By the time of the writing of the book of Second Chronicles, the reign of Solomon and the magnificent temple he built in Jerusalem was in the long-ago past, before King Nebuchadnezzar and the Babylonians brought the reign of the Davidic kings to an end, and the temple had been destroyed. But the history must be kept alive, so Israel can learn from its mistakes and look forward to a new day when God's promise to King David that a descendant would one day come to the throne would be fulfilled. Thousand years later, That descendant of David, Jesus of Nazareth, is born King of the Jews. In Matthew chapter 2, verse 2. He came into his own, and those who were his own did not receive him. In John chapter 1, verse 11. When Jesus was crucified, it was because of his messianic claim. He was born and crucified as King of the Jews. He rose from the dead as our substitute, as King of all kings and he's been given a name that is above every name, so that at the name of Jesus every knee shall bow, every tongue confess to the glory of God the Father that Jesus Christ is Lord. He alone can acquit the guilty sinner and clothe them with righteousness, adopting them into his family. And he will come again as he promised, and it will be said of him, The kingdom of the world has become the kingdom of our Lord and of his Christ, and he will reign forever and ever. Revelation chapter 11, verse 15. Let's go to the book of Second Chronicles now and read about King Solomon and see how the record in Chronicles anticipates and calls for the reign of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ, the King of all kings. Second Chronicles chapter 1. Solomon worships at Gibeon. Solomon, the son of David, established himself in his kingdom, and the Lord his God was with him and made him exceedingly great. Solomon spoke to all Israel, to the commanders of thousands and of hundreds, to the judges and to all the leaders in all Israel, the heads of fathers' houses. And Solomon and all the assembly with him went to the high place that was at Gibeon, for the tent of meeting of God, which Moses the servant of the Lord had made in the wilderness, was there. But David had brought up the ark of God from Kiriath-Jearim to the place that David had prepared for it, for he had pitched a tent for it in Jerusalem. Moreover, the bronze altar that Bezalel, the son of Uri, son of Hur, had made, was there before the tabernacle of the Lord. And Solomon and the assembly sought it out. And Solomon went up there to the bronze altar before the Lord, which was at the tent of meeting, and offered a thousand burnt offerings on it. Solomon prays for wisdom. In that night God appeared to Solomon and said to him, Ask what I shall give you. And Solomon said to God, You have shown great and steadfast love to David my father, and have made me king in his place. O Lord God, let your word to David my father be now fulfilled, 
for you have made me king over a people as numerous as the dust of the earth. Give me now wisdom and knowledge to go out and come in before this people, for who can govern this people of yours, which is so great? God answered to Solomon, Because this was in your heart, and you have not asked for possessions, wealth, honor, or the life of those who hate you, and have not even asked for long life, but have asked for wisdom and knowledge for yourself that you may govern my people over whom I have made you king, wisdom and knowledge are granted to you. I will also give you riches, possessions, and honor, such as none of the kings who were before you and none after you shall have the like. So Solomon came from the high place at Gibeon, from before the tent of meeting, to Jerusalem, and he reigned over Israel. Solomon gathered together chariots and horsemen. He had 1,400 chariots and 12,000 horsemen, whom he stationed in the chariot cities and with the king in Jerusalem. And the king made silver and gold as common in Jerusalem as stone, and he made cedar as plentiful as the sycamore of the Shephelah. And Solomon's import of horses was from Egypt and Q, and the king's traders would buy them from Q for a price. They imported a chariot from Egypt for six hundred shekels of silver, and a horse for one hundred and fifty. Likewise, through them, these were exported to all the kings of the Hittites and the kings of Syria. Chapter 2. Preparing to Build the Temple Now Solomon purposed to build a temple for the name of the Lord, and a royal palace for himself. And Solomon assigned seventy thousand men to bear burdens, and eighty thousand to quarry in the hill country, and three thousand six hundred to oversee them. And Solomon sent word to Hiram the king of Tyre, As you dealt with David my father, and sent him cedar to build himself a house to dwell in, so deal with me. Behold, I am about to build a house for the name of the Lord my God, and dedicate it to him, for the burning of incense of sweet spices before him, and for the regular arrangement of the showbread, and for burnt offerings morning and evening, on the Sabbaths and the new moons, and the appointed feasts of the Lord our God, as ordained for ever for Israel. The house that I am to build will be great, for our God is greater than all gods. But who is able to build him a house, since heaven, even highest heaven, cannot contain him? Who am I to build a house for him, except as a place to make offerings before him? So now send me a man skilled to work in gold, silver, bronze, and iron, and in purple, crimson, and blue fabrics, trained also in engraving, to be with the skilled workers who are with me in Judah and Jerusalem, whom David my father provided. Send me also cedar, cypress, and algum timber from Lebanon, for I know that your servants know how to cut timber in Lebanon." and my servants will be with your servants, to prepare timber for me in abundance, for the house I am to build will be great and wonderful. I will give for your servants, the woodsmen who cut timber, twenty thousand cores of crushed wheat, twenty thousand cores of barley, twenty thousand baths of wine, and twenty thousand baths of oil. Then Hiram the king of Tyre answered in a letter that he sent to Solomon, Because the Lord loves his people, he has made you king over them. Hiram also said, Blessed be the Lord God of Israel, who made heaven and earth, who has given King David a wise son, who has discretion and understanding, who will build a temple for the Lord and a royal palace for himself. Now I have sent a skilled man, who has understanding, Huram Abi, the son of a woman of the daughters of Dan, and his father was a man of Tyre, 
He is trained to work in gold, silver, bronze, iron, stone, and wood, and in purple, blue, and crimson fabrics, and fine linen, and to do all sorts of engraving and execute any design that may be assigned him, with your craftsman, the craftsman of my lord David your father. Now therefore, the wheat and barley, oil and wine, of which my lord has spoken, let him send to his servants, and we will cut whatever timber you need from Lebanon, and bring it to you in rafts by sea to Joppa, so that you may take it up to Jerusalem. Then Solomon counted all the resident aliens who were in the land of Israel, after the census of them that David his father had taken, and there were found 153,600. 70,000 of them he assigned to bear burdens, 80,000 to quarry in the hill country, and 3,600 as overseers to make the people work. Chapter 3. Solomon Builds the Temple Then Solomon began to build the house of the Lord in Jerusalem on Mount Moriah, where the Lord had appeared to David his father, at the place that David had appointed, on the threshing floor of Ornan the Jebusite. He began to build in the second month of the fourth year of his reign. These are Solomon's measurements for building the house of God. The length, in cubits of the old standard, was sixty cubits, and the breadth, twenty cubits. The vestibule in front of the nave of the house was twenty cubits long, equal to the width of the house, and its height was a hundred and twenty cubits. He overlaid it on the inside with pure gold. The nave he lined with cypress, and covered it with fine gold, and made palms and chains on it. He adorned the house with settings of precious stones. The gold was gold of Parvaim, so he lined the house with gold, its beams, its thresholds, its walls, and its doors, and he carved cherubim on the walls. And he made the most holy place. Its length, corresponding to the breadth of the house, was twenty cubits, and its breadth was twenty cubits. He overlaid it with six hundred talents of fine gold. The weight of gold for the nails was fifty shekels, and he overlaid the upper chambers with gold. In the most holy place he made two cherubim of wood and overlaid them with gold. The wings of the cherubim together extended twenty cubits. One wing of the one of five cubits touched the wall of the house, and its other wing of five cubits touched the wing of the other cherub. And of this cherub one wing of five cubits touched the wall of the house, and the other wing also of five cubits was joined to the wing of the first cherub. The wings of these cherubim extended twenty cubits. The cherubim stood on their feet, facing the nave, and he made the veil of blue and purple and crimson fabrics and fine linen, and he worked cherubim on it. In front of the house he made two pillars thirty-five cubits high, with a capital of five cubits on the top of each. He made chains like a necklace, and put them on the tops of the pillars, and he made a hundred pomegranates, and put them on the chains. He set up the pillars in front of the temple, one on the south, the other on the north, that on the south he called Jachin, and that on the north, Boaz. And this concludes today's portion from the Old Testament book of Second Chronicles. Now let's take a few moments to recap and reflect upon what we have just read. Second Chronicles is a continuation of the history of the kings of Israel with a focus on the southern kingdom of Judah. There is an emphasis on the spiritual history of David's descendants. We see from the perspective of the priesthood the nation's history and relationship to God and the temple. 
In the first chapter, we see how Solomon came into full possession of the kingdom. God was with him and established his rule by the gracious promise given to his father, David. Although the ark was now in Jerusalem, housed in a temporary tent which David prepared for it, the tabernacle of Moses and the original brazen altar fashioned by Bezalel was still at the high place in Gibeon. Solomon had it on his heart to begin his reign by calling his people to worship the Lord and to bring sacrifices of thanksgiving before him. In this case, God was not bound to the strict letter of the law and received the worship of Solomon and his people, although the ark was not present. The phrase is significant. The assembly sought out the bronze altar. It reminds us of the place of the ultimate sacrifice where our sins were atoned for. As worshipers, may we never forget the cross and continue to seek it out for a fresh appreciation of God's great love and mercy. Now the bronze altar, which Bezalel, the son of Uri, the son of Hur, had made, was there before the tabernacle of the Lord, and Solomon and the assembly brought it out. 2 Chronicles 1, verse 5 They went to Gibeon because God's tent of meeting was there, or as the ESV reads, the tent of meeting of God was there. 2 Chronicles 1, verse 3 The idea is that the main purpose was not that the tabernacle was a place for people to meet with each other, but where the people were to come for a meeting of God. The tabernacle was not to be a mere meeting house. The meeting would be of God, with God, and for God. Is this how you see our gatherings with brothers and sisters for worship? Of course there is great joy in sharing our experience of God together, but we want to be sure that He is the central focus and not ourselves. Solomon offered 1,000 burnt offerings on the brazen altar. His heart was stirred with gratitude for the mercy that God had shown him. He knew that by God's grace he had been set apart, set upon the throne of his father David, and that he was experiencing God's promise to exalt him greatly. So when later that night God appeared to Solomon in a dream and told him to make a request in 1 Kings chapter 3, verse 5 and 2 Chronicles chapter 1, verse 7, Solomon did not ask for wisdom in order to become great and wealthy. His request was made in the light of the great grace shown to him by God. God was entrusting the leadership of the nation to him. The humility of Solomon's request is made clearer in 1 Kings chapter 3, verses 6-9. through 9. Then Solomon said, You have shown great loving kindness to your servant David my father, according as he walked before you in truth and righteousness and uprightness of heart toward you. And you have reserved for him this great loving kindness, that you have given him a son to sit on his throne as it is this day. Now, O Lord my God, you have made your servant king in place of my father David. Yet I am but a little child. I do not know how to go out or come in. Your servant is in the midst of your people which you have chosen, a great people who are too many to be numbered or counted. So give your servant an understanding heart to judge your people, to discern between good and evil. For who is able to judge this great people of yours? Second Chronicles puts it this way, Give me now wisdom and knowledge, that I may go out and come in before this people. For who can rule this great people of yours? Second Chronicles chapter 1, verse 10 The Lord not only grants Solomon's request for wisdom and knowledge to govern God's people, but promises him riches, possessions, and honor. Some of these riches are described in Second Chronicles chapter 1, verses 14-17. through 17. 
The success of Solomon's economic savvy is indicated by the statement, And the king made silver and gold as common in Jerusalem as stone. 2 Chronicles 1, verse 15 Solomon receives wisdom to govern, but he demonstrates a lack of godly wisdom in his personal life. There are some things he sees clearly and walks in obedience to the revealed will of God. There are other areas in which he is deceived by his own lust and greed. The areas of neglect, as in his father's life, begin in his personal life, but have widespread consequences in the life and downfall of the nation. His personal ambition gets the best of him, and he multiplies horses and wives. He is inebriated by his wealth and power, but these shadows in his character are not the focus of the chronicler and are largely overlooked. He chronicles the elusive nature of satisfaction with his life in the book of Ecclesiastes. Chronicles, however, as we have seen, focuses more on the elements of the reign of Judah's kings that are more suited as prototypes for the coming Messiah, the greater Solomon, Jesus the Christ. Solomon recognizes the nature of his task is to glorify God. The temple he is to build is not a building that can contain God's presence, although he expected his presence to be manifested there. In his letter to King Hiram, the king of Tyre, he makes his intentions clear. The temple he was to build would be a place only to burn incense before him and offer the prescribed sacrifices that would speak of Christ. 2 Chronicles 2, verse 4. He goes on to say in 2 Chronicles 2, verse 5, The house which I am about to build will be great, for greater is our God than all the gods. As New Testament believers, we are now God's habitation, His spiritual house in Ephesians 2, verses 21 and 22, and His appointed royal priesthood, appointed to offer the spiritual incense and sacrifices of praise, adoration, and worship to God in 1 Peter 2, verses 4 and 5. God is spirit, and those who worship Him must worship in spirit and truth. John chapter 4, verse 24. Hiram answers Solomon's request for choice supplies and skilled craftsmen. He sends an exceptionally skilled artisan named Huramabi. This imported talent was a gift from God. Thank God for imported talent that comes just at the right time to meet the need. Huramabi, or Huramabi, was the son of a Danite woman and a Tyrian father who knows how to work in gold, silver, bronze, iron, stone, and wood, and in purple, violet, linen, and crimson fabrics, and who knows how to make all kinds of engravings and to execute any design which may be assigned to him. He was also a good team player, knowing how to work with other artists and successfully oversee them. Solomon exercised wisdom in border control and kept track of the foreigners that had come to take up residence in Jerusalem for the construction project. He made sure that their physical and material needs were met. Verse 1 of chapter 3 ties together the stories of Abraham, David, and Solomon. The temple is going to be built on Mount Moriah, meaning scene of God, or paraphrased center stage. The only other place in the Bible where this name appears is in Genesis chapter 22, verse 2, when Father Abraham is told to take his only son Isaac and offer him there to God. The angel of the Lord appears and stays Abraham's hand and tells him that God would provide a substitute. The promise of God providing himself as a substitute upon Mount Moriah was preserved through the name given by Abraham, Yahweh Jireh, the Lord he will provide. Centuries later, the Lord appeared there to David. 
David made sacrifices on the threshing floor of Ornan, or Arauna, the Jebusite, in 2 Samuel chapter 24, to turn away God's wrathful judgment of sin. On this same piece of real estate, Solomon was now beginning to construct the temple planned and supplied for by his father in the second day of the second month of the fourth year of his reign. The accurate dimensions of the temple's foundations are described. So are the details of the materials and ornamentations. According to the teacher's commentary, the gold used in its construction was worth over $2.5 billion if gold were valued at only the old $35 per ounce, and ten times as much silver as gold had been gathered by David before construction began. The dimensions of the temple and the Holy of Holies are doubled to the original dimensions given by Moses for the tabernacle. Everything is greater because the temple is pointing to a greater reality, the greater son of David, the promise of Abraham, who will provide himself as a sinless substitute there on Mount Moriah, the perfect sacrifice that would forever turn away God's wrath against our sin and turn the judgment seat into a mercy seat for the penitent believer. In front of the temple were two freestanding pillars, six feet thick, standing 35 cubits high, that's 27 feet. The one on the right is named Jachin, meaning he establishes, and the other on the left, Boaz, meaning in him is strength. The pillars symbolized that God had established his house and would fulfill its work in his strength. The pillars were topped with flaming light at night to symbolize the mountaintop presence of the Lord. Now let's go to our next stop in our Bible reading tour to the New Testament book of Romans, Romans chapter 6, verses 1 through 23. Dead to sin, alive to God. Romans chapter 6. What shall we say then? Are we to continue in sin that grace may abound? By no means. How can we who died to sin still live in it? Do you not know that all of us who have been baptized into Christ were baptized into his death? We were buried therefore with him by baptism into death, in order that, just as Christ was raised from the dead by the glory of the Father, we too might walk in newness of life. For if we have been united with him in a death like his, we shall certainly be united with him in a resurrection like his. We know that our old self was crucified with him in order that the body of sin might be brought to nothing, so that we would no longer be enslaved to sin. For one who has died has been set free from sin. Now if we have died with Christ, we believe that we will also live with him. We know that Christ, being raised from the dead, will never die again. Death no longer has dominion over him. For the death he died, he died to sin once for all but the life he lives, he lives to God. So you also must consider yourselves dead to sin and alive to God in Christ Jesus. Let not sin therefore reign in your mortal body to make you obey its passions. Do not present your members to sin as instruments for unrighteousness, but present yourselves to God as those who have been brought from death to life and your members to God as instruments for righteousness for sin will have no dominion over you, since you are not under law, but under grace. What then? Are we to sin because we are not under law, but under grace? By no means. Do you not know that if you present yourselves to anyone as obedient slaves, you are slaves to the one whom you obey, either of sin, which leads to death, or of obedience, which leads to righteousness? But thanks be to God, 
that you who were once slaves of sin have become obedient from the heart to the standard of teaching to which you were committed, and having been set free from sin, have become slaves of righteousness. I am speaking in human terms because of your natural limitations. For just as you once presented your members as slaves to impurity and to lawlessness leading to more lawlessness, so now present your members as slaves to righteousness leading to sanctification. For when you were slaves of sin, you were free in regard to righteousness. But what fruit were you getting at that time from the things of which you are now ashamed? For the end of those things is death. But now that you have been set free from sin and have become slaves of God, the fruit you get leads to sanctification and its end, eternal life. For the wages of sin is death, but the free gift of God is eternal life in Christ Jesus our Lord. And this concludes today's portion from the New Testament, Paul's letter to the Romans. In the book of Romans, chapters 1 and 2, we learned of the universal problem of sin. In chapters 3 through 5, we were introduced to God's solution in Christ, how sinners are justified in the sight of a holy God through faith in Christ and His perfect atoning sacrifice on the cross. But Jesus did not just come to save us from the penalty of sin, justification, but also from the power of sin, sanctification, and one day from the presence of sin, glorification. The reading in Romans today shows us how we can be free from the power of sin through reckoning on our faith union with Christ and relying on the power of the Holy Spirit. We are not only saved by Jesus' death on the cross, but on the basis of the cross, we become partakers of Jesus' resurrection life. Whereas Romans chapters 4 through 5 walk us through the means of forgiveness, the shed blood of Jesus, Romans 6 through 8 walks us through the means of deliverance, the indwelling life of Christ through the Holy Spirit. Chapters 4 and 5 remind us of the value of the blood, symbolizing the poured-out life of Christ for an atonement for sin in order to justify us. Chapters 6 through 8 focus on the work of the cross to deliver us from the power of sin. The Holy Spirit makes real to us our co-crucifixion, co-burial, that is, we're buried with Him in baptism, co-resurrection and co-ascension as those who are identified, hid with Christ. Paul imagined someone who might misinterpret God's gift of forgiveness as a license to live lawlessly. If God lovingly and freely forgives sin, why not give Him more to forgive? Perhaps someone might think, if forgiveness is secured by the performance of Christ as our substitute alone, don't we now have the freedom to sin as much as we want? Paul emphatically replies, May it never be. That is not salvation. Jesus did not come to leave you a slave to sin. He came not only to provide forgiveness of sins, but deliverance from the power of sin. He took the penalty of our sins, but He also takes us, the sinner, to the cross to render the power of sin useless through our co-crucifixion, co-burial, co-resurrection, co-ascension, which is made real to us through the work of the Holy Spirit. As believers, we are called to embrace our union with Christ by faith. Number one, we died with Him in Romans chapter 6, verses 2 and 3. Number two, we were buried with Him, Romans chapter 6, verse 4, part A. Number three, we are raised with Him, Romans chapter 6, verse 4, B. Number four, we are alive with Him in the power of resurrection and thereby free from the domination of sin, 
Romans chapter 6, verses 5 through 6. Knowing this, that our old self was crucified, past tense, with him, in order that our body of sin might be done away with, the Greek word is katargeo, literally meaning rendered inoperative, or brought to nothing, so that we would no longer be slaves to sin. Number five, the result is deliverance. With the penalty for sin paid for, the provision for holy living is provided. In Christ we die to the demands of sin and death. We have a sin nature, but that sin nature does not have us. We can fellowship with the Holy Spirit, who activates in us the law of the Spirit of life in Christ Jesus. Romans chapter 8, verse 2. This spiritual knowledge, the points 1 through 5 that I just shared with you, needs to be reckoned upon daily. Likewise, you also reckon yourselves to be dead indeed to sin, but alive to God in Christ Jesus our Lord. Romans chapter 6, verse 11. The word reckon is an accounting term. What you decide to do with your money requires that you reckon how much money you have available in the bank. You reckon with the facts. As Christians, we continually reckon with the facts of our history. We have been crucified with Christ. That is history. We are dead to sin, and therefore we are not available to serve the sin-loving desires of our old nature. We are no longer under the law because we are joined in a faith union with Christ, who fulfilled the law for us and is alive to fulfill the law in us by the Spirit. In Christ, we yield our bodies to righteousness. Sin is not our master. Christ is. He is the Lord, our righteousness. In Jeremiah chapter 23, verse 6, and Jeremiah chapter 33, verse 16, He, the lawgiver, has become the lawkeeper in our hearts and he is able to bring forth the fruit of holy living through us. For the wages of sin is death, but the gift of God is eternal life in Christ Jesus our Lord. Romans chapter 6, verse 23. Our sins earned us eternal separation from God. Jesus not only satisfied God's justice by taking sin's penalty by dying as our substitute on the cross, his perfect obedience as our substitute earned eternal life which is freely gifted to us to be received by faith. Now let's move on to the Bible's songbook, the book of Psalms, Psalm 16, verses 1 through 11. Preserve me, O God, for in you I take refuge. I say to the Lord, You are my Lord. I have no good apart from you. As for the saints in the land, they are the excellent ones in whom is all my delight. The sorrows of those who run after another god shall multiply. Their drink offerings of blood I will not pour out or take their names on my lips. The Lord is my chosen portion and my cup. You hold my lot. The lines have fallen for me in pleasant places. Indeed, I have a beautiful inheritance. I bless the Lord who gives me counsel. In the night also my heart instructs me. I have set the Lord always before me. Because he is at my right hand, I shall not be shaken. Therefore my heart is glad and my whole being rejoices. My flesh also dwells secure. For you will not abandon my soul to Sheol, or let your Holy One see corruption. You make known to me the path of life. In your presence there is fullness of joy. At your right hand are pleasures forevermore. Psalm 16 contains a powerful prophecy of the resurrection of Jesus Christ. It is called a mitkam, and the first of six psalms to be given that distinction. The other five mitkams are Psalm 56 through 60. What is a mitkam? 
Some believe it to mean a personal or private prayer or meditation. Other scholars believe it may be a musical or liturgical term. This psalm is a mitcam of David. We don't know when it was written or the specific situation of danger that David was facing, but under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, it is distinctly messianic. In the New Testament, the apostles Peter and Paul will quote this psalm and prove that it was Jesus and not David who fits its description. In Acts chapter 2, verses 25 through 31, and in the book of Acts chapter 13, verses 34 through 37, the first verse is a prayer request. Preserve me, O God, for in you I put my trust. Psalm 16, verse 1. The rest of the psalm describes why David puts his trust in the Lord. The Lord is the only source of goodness, yet that goodness is to one day be reflected in the saints who are upon the earth. They are made in God's image, and in Christ they will one day reflect that image with excellence. In verses 3 and 4. The Sovereign Lord has authored the singer's inheritance, his lot and cup. There is satisfaction rather than sorrow when a person gives their full worship to him. The Lord is his counselor and teacher. David is benefited by his instruction with both day and night classes in verse 7. David's personal resolve is to set the Lord always before him, for he is the source of David's security, and to do his will was the delight of his heart. Where is your joy today? Are your eyes fixed on the reality of Christ's supremacy? Who is this one who has made such pure devotion? Verses 10 and 11 single out the one man from the entire span of human history. It is the Holy One. There is only one who lived a perfect life of righteousness. God the Father bore witness to this fact by not allowing him to suffer corruption after his death, but raised him by his power and declared him to be heir of all things, both Lord and Christ, the Son of God. For you will not leave my soul in Sheol, nor will you allow your Holy One to see corruption. You will show me the path of life. In your presence is fullness of joy. At your right hand are pleasures forevermore. Psalm 16, verses 10 and 11. The perfect life and work of Jesus has secured fullness of joy in His presence and lasting pleasures for the saints who believe in Him. Now we go to our final stop on today's Bible tour, the book of Proverbs, chapter 19, verses 20 and 21. Listen to advice and accept instruction that you may gain wisdom in the future. Many are the plans in the mind of a man, but it is the purpose of the Lord that will stand. God gave us a mind to make wise decisions and plans, yet we are extremely vulnerable in doing so unless we are receptive to His counsel and discipline. Our plans may not come to pass according to our design, but the purposes of the Lord will not be thwarted, and the counsel of the Lord will ultimately be proved true. Now let's pray together. Lord, You are the source of all wisdom and goodness. You saw our greatest need and in Your wisdom gave us the perfect solution in Christ Jesus. You have made Him to be for us our wisdom, the provided answer for our deepest needs, our need for righteousness, sanctification, and redemption. He is the cleft of the rock in which we find refuge from our deserved punishment and through whom we have free and safe access into your presence. Lord Jesus, thank you for willingly identifying with us and taking the penalty of our sin, that we might be mercifully justified in the court of your impeccable justice. We thank you for your faithfulness to publicly vindicate his testimony by raising him from the dead, 
that we might share in his inheritance of fullness of joy and everlasting pleasure in your presence. Give us the wisdom to walk in a way that honors your holy name, through Christ Jesus our Lord. Amen. Well, this concludes today's tour of our one-year Bible reading, and we look forward to being with you, God willing, tomorrow. If you have any questions or comments, we'd love to hear from you. You can email us at podcast at newlife.org. And if you'd like to know more about the ministries of New Life Community Church and New Life Fine Arts, and if you would like to receive a written copy of our commentary on each day's portion of the Bible, you can subscribe at our website, newlife.org, and receive in your email box the written commentary for each day's portion with charts and illustrations. Now may the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, the love of God, and the fellowship of the Holy Spirit be with you all. Shalom. Shalom.